Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Colossians, and that's uh, what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be actually going into a brand new book, and we'll be in this book for the next several months. Um, tell you a little bit about uh, Colossians in a second here. Um, but I'm excited uh, to be able to jump into the book of Colossians. Um, uh, one of the reasons why I'm excited about it is because we are going to have a lineup of some really good, solid Bible teachers that are part of our church that will be uh, sharing the teaching with uh, me to you guys over the next several months. Uh, next week, uh, Ben Potter, he's actually been a part of our church for a long time. He served in our high school ministry, junior high and whatnot for quite a long time. He's a great teacher. He'll actually be teaching next week. Pastor James, you guys will get a chance to hear from his, him as well. And uh, so I'm excited to hear what God's going to be able to teach us through this great book and begin to challenge us in those things. Um, Colossians is one of those books, in a lot of ways, has had a huge impact upon my spiritual walk with Jesus as I've grown in, as a Christian. And uh, I hope and pray that's going to have a nice, good impact upon you guys as well. So what I want to do first is I'm going to uh, pray, and then we'll read basically verses 1 through 8, and that's about as far as we're going to get here today. In fact, I could have basically looked at verse 1 and stopped right there, but uh, chose to go a little bit further than that. In fact, there's one of my favorite preachers as a side note. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he had an entire, like, two or three sermons on one word, the word but, all right? But God, right? But. And uh, lots of sermons on one single word. So I'm not going to bore you guys with that. But um, anyways, I'm going to pray. And then I'll read uh, the verses 1 through 8. And then we'll begin to take a look at this great book in this great Bible. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your love, your kindness that you've demonstrated to us. And again, God, we ask you that you would help us to have more than just simply information. God, information doesn't change our hearts. It doesn't set us on fire. It doesn't make us more compassionate. More information doesn't make us more loving. What makes us more loving is knowing that we are loved in spite of ourselves. So that good news, Lord, is what we need to preach to our souls. That good news is what we need to liberate us, to set us free. So we ask God for your help here this morning as we begin to dive in, look at your word, and speak to us, we ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as you guys have noticed, our projector went out for a service, so we don't have any slides for you guys. We do have slides, but if you are sitting over there, I think they're maybe showing you. Are they on? They're on. So small segment of you guys get slides, um, and so we'll get the thing fixed, hopefully for you guys next week. But uh, that means basically this. If you guys don't have a Bible, you need to make sure you have a Bible. We have some Bibles in the back, so please feel free to grab a Bible if you don't own a Bible. Uh, keep it. It's our gift to you guys. It's another kind of nice little encouragement. Make sure you guys bring a Bible to church. You know, I mean, obviously, as we gather as a church, community of saints, we want to make sure that we have our Bibles and we read from them. Um, We do provide, obviously, slides uh, for you guys to be able to read them, but we don't want to become totally dependent upon those things. Um, Otherwise, things like this happen and you don't have the Bible in your lap. So, anyways, um, I'm going to read the passages and then we'll begin to take a look at what God has to speak to us today. So, verse 1. Chapter 1, book of Colossians, starts off like this. I'm going to make some comments, by the way, as I go through this. Uh, So if I stop and move and pause and unpack a little bit, that's uh, intentional. So verse 1 says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul, first of all, starts off, says he's an apostle. The word apostle basically means one who is sent. Uh, I've said this before, that in the Bible, um, especially mainly, obviously, in the New Testament, there are what we would kind of distinguish between uh, uppercase apostles and lowercase apostles. And the distinguishing factor, a mark, would be, uppercase would be a special group of people, 12 in number, in which Jesus has uh, specially selected or called, and those special number of apostles, uppercase A apostles, would have been the ones that had, uh, in essence, uh, written out the revelation of Scripture that we guys hold in our hands, that we read today, that we are feeding off of. Uh, and then the lowercase apostles would basically simply mean one who is sent. The word apostle means one who is sent or to go forth somewhere. And so Paul is uh, saying that he was an apostle. He was an uppercase apostle, meaning he had written much of the New Testament. We read what he had written based upon inspiration. God had spoken to Paul. God had given him divine revelation. So what we read uh, are the thoughts, not just simply of Paul, but the thoughts of Paul as inspired or moved or breathed by God himself. So, um, apostle in terms of lowercase is sort of the idea that we are all sent. Um, 
in other words, we have been given a mission, a commission to be some to be people that are living for the gospel uh, in all sorts of ways and arenas in which God calls us to. Uh, as I alluded to earlier, just before we prayed for uh, Josh and Adrian, the idea is, is that they had gone somewhere uh, to Chico. Not all of us are necessarily going to be called to go somewhere, per se, in terms of another city or another country or, to, or another continent. But all of us are called to go somewhere on mission to live on, uh, to live on mission for the gospel. For some of us, it may mean uh, as we go to school, if you're a student, to live on mission for the gospel. Some of you, it may mean uh, within your workplaces, your neighborhoods. Uh, if you're a mom and you're like, I don't work, um, I don't go to school, I got four kids at home that scream a lot. Um, and you may every once in a while go out to the park to let your kids get some energy out. Well, you can view yourself intentionally as a missionary to the park. Not to the park per se, but to moms at the park, other people at the park. The idea is to live intentionally, letting the gospel motivate and move and take us, letting God work through us in ways that bring glory and honor to him uh, and allow us to be able to be a blessing to other people. So this is what Paul was saying, that he in specific sense was an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God uh, and Timothy the brother to basically go out around and preach the gospel. Now, he speaks about this guy, Timothy. Timothy was one of Paul's, what we would describe maybe as like a protege or, an, or a disciple of Paul, uh, who was ultimately a disciple of Jesus. So in other words, uh, Paul had a handful of men that he had trained up, poured into, and had, had released ultimately to ministry. Timothy, no doubt, was one of these guys that had followed Paul around. It was believed that at one point, Timothy would then go out and plant churches himself or be a pastor somewhere himself. And that came as a direct result of Paul pouring his life into the life of Timothy. And in short, this is what a disciple is. Uh, We speak about this a lot, that really for us as a church, our goals and our job is not to just simply gather together a group of people on a Sunday morning so that we have a crowd. That is not Christianity, by the way. Just simply merely gathering a group of people in a building on a Sunday morning is not necessarily a church, all right? It may be a church as long as those people really understand who they are in Christ. But the point of the matter is, is that a disciple is not just simply someone that gathers together with a group of other people in a crowd. A disciple is someone that lives the mission of Jesus. We like to put it this way. Really what we're about as a church, that we are seeking to make disciples who love God, love others, and live on mission for the gospel. So in other words, not just simply people that make a decision to follow Jesus. We want people to decide to follow Jesus. We absolutely want that. But it can't stop there. It has to lead into or segue into or begin to move into a lifestyle whereby you follow somebody. In this case, you follow Jesus. Timothy was a disciple of Paul who ultimately really Timothy was a disciple of Jesus, but he was following Paul, who in turn was following Jesus. And really, as we grow, one of the ways that you can identify whether or not you're really growing in your understanding of the gospel is, are you raising up disciples? Who are the ones that you're discipling? Who are the ones that you're pouring into? Who are the people that you are giving your life, sharing your life with, pouring your life out for, to, demonstrating uh, before them the example of the gospel? This is what we see with the life of Paul being put on display with this guy, Timothy. Uh, Secondly, in verse 2, it says, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ that are at Colossae. We'll unpack more a little bit about what Colossae is in just a second. Uh, Paul says that he writes to the saints. Um, Saints are not just simply people that, once they die, uh, based upon a committee, decide to distinguish certain men or women as saints. Really, biblically, saint is somebody that follows Jesus. So you need to think about it this way. If you're a Christian, that means that you are a saint. Now that might be a little bit of a shock to you. You might not like to even think of yourself like that. You might even think, I'm not even worthy to bear that name because I'm certainly not a saint. Let me put it this way. Biblically speaking, if you are a Christian, you're a saint. Own that. Live that. Understand that. Grow into that. Let that shape the way that you think. Let it shape the way that you live. Let it shape the way that you give your money. Let it shape the way that you view everything in your life, from what you eat, to what you drink, to how you relate, to how you forgive, to what you and who you love. You're a saint. That's exactly what Paul 
wants this group of people to understand. So it appeals to them on the basis of who they are, first and foremost. So he goes on to say, and grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Paul actually uses sort of a very common, what we would typically call a Pauline um, greeting, uh, by basically using two words, grace and peace. Grace is the Greek, common Greek uh, greeting for, uh, the Greek word would be charis, charis, grace. Uh, it's the idea of favor, someone who has favor. And then the second word that he uses is peace. And this would basically sort of be an adaptation from the Hebrew word shalom. And the word shalom uh, doesn't just simply mean peace in terms of the cessation of war, but it basically means the reordering, reorientation of all things so that they would be made right. It's the idea, think of it this way. Uh, think of having your body in perfect physical health with the exception that you have an arm that's out of socket. You ever had a bone that's out of socket or something that's out of joint? It's extremely painful. It's extremely painful. And in fact, it actually sends pain throughout your entire body. Or if you've had a muscle that's sort of been pulled, your whole body can be healthy. You know, no sickness. You don't have the flu. You don't have a cough. No allergies, nothing. Everything's fine. But this simple pulled muscle or the simple uh, bone that's out of joint has actually brought chaos to your body. Shalom is the reorienting, reordering of things, putting those muscles back into right order, putting those bones that are out of joint back into proper order. Sin, the Bible says, disorients everything, destroys us. It's basically living a life with a body that's completely out of socket or out of joint, all sorts of ligaments and muscles and bones not functioning properly. But peace is basically the reordering of that. That's what Paul's saying. He's wishing, uh, desiring, hoping, greeting them with this typical Pauline greeting of grace upon you and peace. God's shalom be upon you as a community in this city of Colossae. Verse 3, he says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and growing as it does among you since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved servant. He is our fellow minister, or he's a fellow minister of Christ on your behalf, and he made known to us your love in the Spirit. So I'm going to begin to unpack the rest of that in just a moment. But what I want to do first is I want to give you guys a handful of important facts. I've had a slide up there. You can see basically some of these important facts. But I'll unpack them in my notes so you can hear what they are. First of all, we already kind of determined that Paul is the actual author of this. Um, The date by which this was written, probably somewhere around 60 to 62 AD. Which, if that's the case, and that basically would have meant that Paul would have been in prison. Now, this is really important to note. Paul actually was a prisoner of uh, the empire of Rome. Um, That would have meant that when Paul wrote this letter, along with a handful of other letters, he was actually tied to a guard in a prison cell, waiting a sentence. I think that's really significant, because here's why. If you or I were to ever be in jail, right, what would your attitude be if you were thrown in prison? Right? First of all, most of us, if we were ever thrown in prison or you have been in prison or you just got out of prison last night, glad you guys are here. But um, the point of the matter is most of us were probably not put in prison for the same reason by which Paul, for which Paul was actually in prison. Paul was in prison for the gospel, meaning Paul was preaching Jesus, which Jesus was a foreign deity or entity to Roman people. And so as a result of that, ironically, most early Christians in the first century, believe it or not, they were actually uh, in prison and murdered. Uh, on the charge of atheism. That might come shock, as a shock to some of us who are like, atheism? I thought they believed in God. Problem is, is that they believed in a God that was not identified or recognized. Uh, because Rome had lots of gods. They identified and recognized lots of foreign deities. Except Jesus comes along, or this message of Jesus was sort of a foreign god to them. They didn't recognize Jesus as a god, so therefore they viewed them as worshiping a non-god. Or not having a god or atheism. So Paul would have been thrown in prison, and during his time in prison, um, Paul redeemed his time. I think this is extremely significant to sort of pause 
and just sort of think about this. Because I think most of us, when we look at our lives and the challenges and the circumstances and the hardships that we find ourselves going through, often as we use those as moments to complain, to shake our fists at God, to get upset, to find fault, find blame in somebody who maybe wronged us, and that's why we're in the place that we're at. Not Paul. Paul was in this circumstance, and not only that, to kind of make matters a little bit worse, Paul actually writes about and describes how when he was in prison, he was completely abandoned. That there were actually believers that were ashamed, Paul says, of his chains. That's kind of a fancy way of Paul, a poetic way of basically Paul saying, there's a lot of people that don't want to come near me because they basically view me as cursed, and if they did come near me, maybe like the curse would fall off me and onto them, or secondarily, they may actually not want to be associated with Paul because if, because oftentimes back in those days, they basically, you know, the way that you would get food while you were in prison was they didn't have the government funding everything, you know, making sure you had a weight room to work out in, you know, uh, all sorts of ways to kind of take care of your physique. Um, back then, the way that you would get your food was that people would actually deliver food to you. And the way that you would get clothing would be that friends or family or people that you knew would actually come and bring you clothing. Uh, there were no, like, government-funded or subsidized means by which to take care of you. So Paul basically would have been in prison, and he describes the fact that everybody abandoned him. That meant that he probably didn't get a lot of food, probably didn't get a lot of clothing, probably didn't get a lot of notes, care, consideration. And Paul says, because people are ashamed of me. They're ashamed of the fact of who I am, what I've done. So Paul, let me ask you, did Paul have every right, any right perhaps, to get embittered, to be upset, to blog nasty things about the church? Absolutely. Paul had lots of reasons to be angry at Christians. What does Paul do the rest of his life, at least while he's in jail? He writes letters to those who abandoned him. It's amazing. Paul redeemed, didn't waste his time in prison. Uh, one of my favorite pastors, pe- preachers, a guy named John Piper, uh, has a phrase that maybe some of you guys have heard. He actually wrote a book called Don't Waste Your Life. But in that, he unpacks all sorts of different ways by which Christians can sort of waste certain things. And through that, he talks about a person who's got cancer. And he says, they didn't waste their cancer, meaning even in the midst of their cancer, they use it as a platform, use it as an occasion, use it as an opportunity, as a chapter in their life to mingle with, to meet with people that they would have normally never, ever mingled with or met with And in doing so, they didn't waste their cancer. They redeemed their cancer. In challenges of lives, you know, don't, he describes, don't waste your poverty. If you have nothing, you've lost everything, don't waste your poverty. If you're suffering, don't waste your suffering. If you have challenges in your life, don't waste your challenges. If you've gone through a divorce, don't waste your divorce. If you've gone through sickness or illness or disease, don't waste that. Don't waste these things. Paul was a man that learned how to redeem what God had brought him into. No matter how horrible, how challenging, how difficult it was for him. Think Paul felt lonely? I would imagine he felt lonely all the time. But Paul redeemed his time there and used it as an opportunity to write letters to Christians. I'm thankful for that because we wouldn't have much of a New Testament if Paul did not redeem his time well, to use it in a way to bring forth love and honor to those people in a lot of ways that had abandoned him. So we see, first of all, Paul was in prison. The second thing, kind of try to unpack a little bit of the question as to what was the reason? Why did Paul write this? Well, there's a couple reasons that a lot of scholars kind of point out, kind of point them out to you. First of all, is to one of the dangers of local folk religions that were basically being pushed upon or brought upon uh, the believers within this city of Colossae. Um, Colossae was within an area called the Lycus Valley. Um, it wasn't too far, maybe about 100, 120 miles or so from uh, the great city of Ephesus. If you're familiar at all with ancient uh, civilizations, you know that Ephesus was one of the greatest cities of, of all time. It actually had one of, uh, from what I'm told, like one of the seven ancient wonders, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, this big, massive statue uh, to the goddess Diana. And so, um, it wasn't too far from that. So think maybe from here to Santa Barbara. That's about how far away it was. So you'd imagine you'd get all sorts of like traffic coming from the region of Ephesus into the region of Colossae. Um, it was in uh, what would be modern day Turkey. So, you know, if you want to think geographically where it was located. Uh, it was very close uh, to a couple other cities. Uh, one was called Heriopolis. Uh, Heriopolis. Another one was called um, Laodicea. 
If you're familiar with the uh, New Testament, the book of Revelation, remember Jesus actually wrote a letter to a church that was living in the region called Laodicea. Uh, so these three cities basically were kind of a colony of three cities. They were very close, very connected, very interconnected, probably about 20 miles apart from each other. And so you would imagine there's a lot of commercialism going on within these cities, a lot of uh, exchanging of ideas. But as a result of that, there was also sort of a lot of trading of religions. And so uh, this particular region um, had all sorts of uh, sort of pagan deities that were worshipped and devoted uh, to uh, amongst all sorts of other deities. So think of it this way. It was a very pluralistic society. There was uh, the city, based upon ancient excavations, they've discovered that there was a, a theater there. Uh, they've discovered gymnasiums, or a gymnasium, I should say, within the city of Colossae, which tells us a little bit about how big this city was. Um, estimations tell us it wasn't, that very, it wasn't very large of a city compared to, like, an Ephesus. So it was kind of a medium-sized city, which, at the same time, because it had a theater, tells us that these people actually valued the arts, because it had a gymnasium. Tells us not only did they value what? What would you assume if a culture or city has a gymnasium, what do you think they would value? What was that? I didn't hear that. I still didn't hear it. Shape, yeah. In fact, one of the gods they worship was Hygiena. Guess, guess what that was the god of? Hygiene, right? You guys are so brilliant. Um, so you imagine, not only was a gymnasium for the physique, your body, working out, but it was also a place where you would go to learn. So it was in the gymnasiums that they would also uh, basically devote themselves to understanding and learning and wisdom. And so you would have sort of a cross-pollinization of all sorts of ideas and concepts being traded and exchanged at wholesale value within that particular city. And the concern was, was that there were Christians or people within the church that were basically bringing in or introducing false uh, ideas, religious ideas into the church. And the problem with that was that Paul's going to say later on, is even though some of these false religious ideas had an appeal to many of these people to maybe like living healthy or looking good or being physically in shape, Paul says the problem is it actually restricted their ability to have freedom in Christ. In other words, the big problem, the big reason why commingling or introducing or kind of co-merging different types of religious concepts with Christianity is that it doesn't actually add to Christianity, it detracts from Christianity. It takes away from the freedom that Jesus had purchased, which leads us to the second reason why Paul wrote. The second reason, really, is that Paul wanted to emphasize the all-sufficiency of Jesus. He wanted these believers to realize that when you add something to Jesus, you're actually not adding something to your life, you're subtracting something from your life. You're not becoming better. You're not becoming more closer to God. You're actually finding yourselves bound by other certain elements. Paul's going to actually describe them as elemental principles of the world. Touch not, taste not. You know, I mean, the reality is what Paul is trying to say is that Jesus has set us free. He's a king, he's a good king. And the idea is, is that the word that we use oftentimes to be interchanged with the word king is the word Christ, right? We oftentimes describe Jesus as being Jesus, Christ. Don't think of Christ as being his last name, Right? Christ is more so his title. Christ is his title. In other words, it's who he is. If you want a direct, I think a direct English translation into the modern day world of thinking about what the word Christ is, think of the word king. So when you think of the word Jesus Christ, think of Jesus king or King Jesus. So if Jesus is indeed the king, and Paul is saying that this king is so powerful, so mighty, what Paul is saying is that this king has the ability to provide every single thing for you that's necessary for you to thrive, for you to function, for you to live, for you to love other people. He provides everything for you that you need. In other words, a kingdom or a king who oversees his kingdom, a kingdom, break that word down, king's domain, that's what a kingdom is. A good king is a king that knows how to take care of not only his domain, but take care of his subjects living within that domain. Let me ask you, does Jesus know how to take good care of every subject in his domain? The answer is yes. So what Paul is basically going to try to be arguing for in writing this letter to these believers is, look, Jesus plus anything actually takes away from your life. Don't add anything to Jesus. No matter how spiritual it is, 
no matter how religious it might sound, it's not adding anything to your life. It's actually subtracting. It's taking away. It's deterring from the beauty and the glory of what God has already provided through the good king who rules over a good king, a de- a domain, the kingdom, and who lovingly lays his life down for the subjects of that kingdom. That's what Paul is going to ultimately argue for. So what I want to do is I want to basically finish up this morning by basically pointing out three specific things because Paul alludes to, or makes mention of, I should say, in the very first part of this book, to the fruit of the gospel. So what Paul is going to basically make reference to is that he's so stoked as to what's happening within this church. Um, and I, I should actually point out the final thing, uh, I think it's important, is probably the leader or the pastor of this church is a guy by the name of Epaphras. He makes mention of him in verse 7 and 8. And so he refers to Epaphras in verse 7. I'll read it to you again. He says this. He says, just as you learned the gospel, that is, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us uh, your love in the Spirit. So what Paul's basically saying is that uh, we've learned about you guys in the city of Colossae from this faithful servant of Epaphras. But you've learned of Jesus through Epaphras. So we don't really know a lot about Epaphras, but what we do know, or what we do suspect, I should say, is that Epaphras was probably the pastor of this church in the city of Colossae. Most scholars believe that Paul never has ever even visited Colossae. So in other words, the church that is uh, in the city of Colossae Paul did not directly plant that church. Paul, Paul would have indirectly planted that church by way of ministry to this guy, Epaphras. Epaphras met Jesus probably through Paul. Epaphras would have then uh, shared Jesus to the Colossian believers through just going to them. Now here's what I love about this. Is that the Colossian people, what Paul is saying, is the reason why there's a church, a thriving community of saints in the city of Colossae, is simply because of the faithfulness of this guy, Epaphras. He went to the city of Colossae. He lovingly laid his life down. He showed them, shared with them, spoke to them, told them about Jesus. And as a result of that, these people in Colossae met Jesus and were transformed. I was kind of thinking about this as I was studying and preparing. I was thinking, who was the one that actually shared Jesus with me? Actually took me back to the time when I was around 15 years old, almost 16 years old. It was actually my stepmom that shared Jesus with me. When I was fairly young, probably around 12, my parents had divorced. My dad remarried, remarried a lady that loved Jesus. And I can remember when I was around 15 years old, uh, our parents, my parents actually, we went to two different churches. I uh, went to a church in Orange County, went to another church that was actually a Catholic church. And so I remember sitting in a 1984 Volkswagen van again, it was brown, and my stepmom, which was sharing Jesus with me in the parking lot of our Catholic church. And I just remember for the very first time, Jesus actually making sense to me. So I can look at that and think, if it wasn't for the faithfulness of my stepmom loving me, was I, was I a great kid for her to love? No, in fact, I was nothing but a headache for her. Or I was a constant, throbbing headache for her. I didn't know Jesus. I was a punk surfer. All right? um, I didn't even really like her kids. When my parents married. I had a stepbrother and stepsister. Our family was as absolutely dysfunctional as they come. We would actually do like family counseling and that was a joke we would have the counselor come to our house and we'd sit down and we'd still and, and, I, and now that we're older all the kids love each other we all have fun we actually laugh about those times when dr lyle would come and sit down and counsel us and we would laugh in his face he would be like no tell us kids about your feelings we'd be like ha, you're kidding me right and we would laugh at him in his face but point of the matter is we were punks and even though i was a punk my stepmom loved me enough to tell me about jesus it was because of her faithfulness I met Jesus. What about you? Who was the faithful servant sent to you to tell you about Jesus? Mom, dad, grandma, pastor, Bible study leader, your wife, your husband, your child? Think about who that person was. Thank God for that person. Thank God for how God used him in your life. The second thing I would ask you to think about who are the people in your life that maybe God wants to use you as God used Epaphras? In other words, who are the people in your life that maybe God wants you to be the Epaphras for? To faithfully share, to faithfully love, to faithfully communicate the power, the beauty, the greatness of Jesus to them. So Paul is just writing to these people. He's basically saying, I'm thankful for what's happening there. I want to finish with basically looking at three things because he says, 
all of this is, in essence, fruit of the gospel. Fruit of the gospel. All right, it's that time of year right now where all the trees become kind of fruitful, right? We get all the summer fruit. Last week, I took my family. We went down to uh, uh, Avila Valley Barn. One of the things that we love to do as a family, several times a year, whatever they got stuff to pick, we always go down there as a family and we pick stuff. We love it. Just last week, it was peaches. And we picked a lot of peaches, way more peaches than we should have picked. And just so that you guys know, just FYI, if you're like going to go, I'm going to go do that. Just make sure that you know, don't pick too many because when you bring them up to the counter, you are responsible to pay for every peach you pick. You can't be like, can't you like put this on your counter? Like, you have to pay for it all. So that's kind of a bummer, but side note. Anyways, Paul is looking at the fruit of their lives and is like, it's sweet, it's good, it's beautiful, and it's all attributed to the gospel working through your lives. So what are some of the elements of fruit that Paul points to? The first fruit of the gospel that Paul points to is he says, I thank God for your faith. Listen to this. He says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The word faith is the Greek word pistos, which basically has the idea of not just simply mental assertion. Don't think of faith in the way the Westerners would typically think of faith, meaning uh, here's a bunch of facts over here. Here's your brain. Here's your brain on facts. In other words, you take those facts and somehow migrate those facts into your brain. That's the idea of faith. That's, that's not the concept that Paul wants us to understand. Faith in a Hebraic sense is not just simply accumulation of information. It's allowing that information to penetrate, to change, to move, to motivate you. Think of it maybe in another way of an idea of confidence, um, trusting in to the point where you would actually put your life in something. All right, maybe in a lesser analogy, think of it in a way of sitting on a chair. You all have faith in those extremely uncomfortable chairs. I know they're uncomfortable. I've sat in them before. All right, but to the point that you have faith in them, you've sat in them, no matter how uncomfortable they are, you, you believe, you trust that it's not going to fall. If you had any doubt that it was going to fall, you probably wouldn't be sitting in it. But the point of the matter is, is that there is a sense of faith where faith leads us to trust in, to place our lives in to the hands of this faithful God. So Paul is actually writing them and saying, I'm so thankful to God. Because you as a community of people that once were part of this sort of uh, folk religion of the Lycus Valley, you're now free. Because you have placed your confidence in King Jesus. He's made you free. He's liberated you. He's washed away your sins. He's given you new life. He's transformed your heart. And what I love about this is Paul is going to say elsewhere that this is actually one of the evidences, evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's interesting in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, in today's culture, Christian culture, we can look as, at evidences for the Holy Spirit moving by being, you know, who's speaking in tongues, how many people are healed. And all of those things may be characteristic traits of the Holy Spirit moving one of the reasons why we pray for people who are sick. We do believe God can heal them. But the reality is, is that Paul is looking at this and saying one of the greatest, most unbelievably life-changing, life-shattering evidences that the Holy Spirit is moving, one of the greatest fruits, characteristic fruits that God is doing something, is you have gone from a season, a place, a category in your life where you were once trusting in Things that could not save you to now you have shifted your focus, your confidence, your trust from these things to place them in King Jesus. Paul says, I'm rejoicing in this. That is a miracle of God at work in your life. Paul's going to say actually later on in the book of Colossians that he's actually transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's a huge statement if you haven't like thought about that. that. I don't even know what he's talking about there. He transferred us. It just moved us from a place of darkness, a status of darkness, into a place of unbelievable light and glory, full of weightiness. Paul's saying, I am so thankful at what God is doing in your life. This is an amazing thing when you continue to, again, unpack this a little bit. Because Paul starts out by basically saying, uh, you guys are saints. And you guys are part of this kingdom of God that, that God is doing. Now again, was this church a perfect church? Not at all. I mean, they, were, they had issues just like you and I. I'm sure they had factions and areas where they were broken and messed up. And 
arguments over silly, petty things. It's like you and I have arguments over silly, petty things. But Paul is able to look at this church in spite of all of this, in jail, in spite of being betrayed by some of the saints. And Paul says, I'm so thankful for what God's doing in your life, that you guys have seen the beauty of Jesus. That is the fruit of the gospel moving in your lives. And I'm grateful for that. Second thing that Paul is going to attribute to a fruit of the gospel is he going to say that it's love. He's going to describe it this way as he puts, points out. He says, since, in verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul's going to say, not only do you guys have confidence in King Jesus, that you've actually shifted your, the weight of confidence or what you're trusting in from the things of this world, from false religions, false deities, false relations, whatever, to King Jesus. Not only that, it's not only just simply having vertical consequences whereby you and your relationship with God are being remade, but also horizontal consequences whereby you are actually extending, moving outward in love towards all sorts of other people. Let me put it to you this way. Uh, There's a scholar by the name of N.T. Wright. Here's what he said. I like his quote. He says, love doesn't simply mean that we have good feelings about each other. We might have them, but what it really means is that the behavior which marks out so much of the world, that is lust, anger, lies, and so on, which has split up families and communities, actually being replaced by kindness, gentleness, forgiveness, acceptance of one another as members of the same family, even where there were major differences of grace or of race, background, and culture. So in other words, what he's saying is that one of the evidences of love is not just that you and I have these warm, fuzzy feelings towards each other. In other words, in a lot of ways, the way we typically think of love is we think of love in terms of a sentimental value. We think of love in terms of how I feel towards you. That's really not the type of love the Bible actually describes. The type of love that the Bible actually lays out actually transcends that type of love, of just simply feeling something for somebody. In a lot of ways, it's similar or reminiscent to like a mother loving a child. Does a mother love changing the diaper of a child that's flailing and freaking out and screaming? At that moment, let me ask it this way. At that moment, does that mother feel warm, sentimental value towards that child? Probably not. Probably not. But does she love that child? Yes. How is that love being demonstrated? By changing the soiled diaper. That's love. That we're willing to change or bear with our lives, which may be defiling, which may even soil you, but we're willing to change each other. We're willing to bear with each other. We're willing to pick up with each other and to carry each other. That's what he's basically saying. When we think about this, it's kind of a strange irony. Is that the irony really is this, is that love, in a very general sense, is humanity's greatest problem, but it's also humanity's greatest solution. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus would put it this way. The problem with all humanity is that we love darkness more than we love light. So the real issue of all humanity is that it's not that we don't love. It's not that we're so bombarded by hate. It's that we love the wrong things. We love ourselves. We love our ways. We love our kingdom. And as a result of that, we actually hate anything that violates or conflicts with my ultimate love. Does that make sense? So let me unpack this for you. If you are somebody that is prone to having a temper, meaning you flare up, you freak out, you rage, probably it's because you have fallen in love so much with your own ways, your own self, and when any time yourself is violated or conflicted or challenged, you rage. It's not that we don't love, it's that we love the wrong things. But the gospel comes along and says the greatest solution to our greatest problem is that it reorients our love. It shifts what we love from being upon ourselves, upon subordinate things, to being placed upon the right thing, the true thing, the ultimate thing, Jesus. And the way that it does that, it reveals to us an image, a glimpse of the glory of God. Where? How? In Jesus, the Bible says. Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God that ravishes our heart to the people that see it. If we see 
who Jesus is in light of that. It changes us. It transforms us. It realigns what we love. It changes what we love. So that in loving God is ultimate. It allows me, helps me, changes me, transforms me to love what God loves. What does God love? He loves the world. He loves you. He loves his enemies. It frees me, in other words. Let me put it this way. The gospel frees us so that our love is liberated from being a slave to our emotions to become a master of our actions. Let me restate that, or reword it. Restate it, I should say. The gospel frees us so that our love is actually liberated from being a slave to our emotions. Because then oftentimes what we say, I don't love them because I don't feel like loving them. What you're saying when you declare that is that my love is actually a slave to my emotions. The gospel frees you from that. By the way, if you say that, it's because you're not free. The gospel can free you. So that now love can actually be a master over your actions. So what that means, even if I don't feel like loving somebody that may have been harsh or critical to me, I can still love them by laying my life down for them. That is love. That is the love that Jesus put on display for us. Was his heart filled with sentimentality on the cross, thinking of such an amazing find that he got through us? Not at all. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, it's like there was no sentimentality coming out of Jesus at all on the cross. What was coming out of Jesus was an intense love of God by laying his life down to save us, to rescue us, to change a soiled diaper. That's what it was going on on the cross. He was being soiled so that we, through his being soiled, can be made clean. That's the type of love that Jesus puts on display. Let me put it this way. I'll move on to the next point and be done. God's love for us actually produces love in us. God's love for us produces love in us. In other words, to the degree that you see how much you've been loved by God through Jesus on the cross... It shows you not only how undeserving you are of that love, but it shows you how profoundly great that love is. And that frees you now so that you can lay your life down for your enemies. You can actually be generous and be giving to those that have maybe wounded you or hurt you. Or like Paul, who has been totally betrayed by the church because everybody's ashamed of him. He can sit down in a prison cell with who knows what type of light or ink and actually write a letter that's going to last for the next 2,000 years feeding believers worldwide because he didn't waste his suffering. He allowed the gospel to melt his heart to make him into a different type of person that resembles Jesus to give his life away so that many people can be blessed. The final thing I want to finish with this uh, is that the fruit of the gospel really gives hope. And I'll finish with this thought and I'm done. He says, because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed throughout the entire world, bearing fruit and growing. So here's what Paul's going to say. That you have received this hope that's come to you, reserved in heaven, and this hope has actually fueled your soul, your heart, so that the way you're living and what you're doing is beginning to bear fruit all around you. Everywhere around you is beginning to be impacted and beginning to be changed and transformed as a result of this hope that you have in heaven. I need to unpack something real quick because there's a tendency for us as Christians or depending upon what type of background you came from to think of heaven as being this place, the ultimate thing. That when you die, the ultimate place that you will one day end up going to is heaven. Now let me try to put it this way. That's actually false. Okay? Let me try to put it this way. If you were to die right now, right now, your body or your soul will go someplace we would call that heaven. It's the way Paul would put it this way. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Meaning, wherever Christ is, we don't know exactly where it is, location, space, whatever it is, domain, wherever that is, we would call that heaven. Your soul will go be with Jesus. And you will await a day that's called the resurrection. When that day called the resurrection happens, you'll be given a new body, new life, and you'll be given a new place to live that new body in called the new heavens and the new earth. The ultimate state is planet earth. A renewed earth. God is not in the business of making all new things. God is in the process of making all things new. 
And part of that final ultimate creation is by taking this earth which is broken. It's diseased. It's dysfunctional. You and I are broken, diseased, and dysfunctional because of sin. And Jesus is making all things new. So one day, the ultimate state is that heaven and earth will collide in a way. They'll be married in a way that all things will be beautiful like it was prior to sin entering into this world. And the reason why we know this is the case because Jesus came to earth as what? A phantom? A ghost? Or as a human being in a body? He had a body. When Jesus rose again from the dead, did he rise as a phantom? No, as a body. A literal, physical resurrection. And Paul tells us in Romans 8, the hope for all humanity is found in the prototype. The prototype is Jesus, who was resurrected in a physical body. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 20, says this, our citizenship is in heaven. Now this has kind of caused some people to think, well, that means that one of these days our address is going to shift and we're going to end up one day going someplace else out there to heaven. What Paul is actually using is he's borrowing a phrase from Roman uh, world that basically recognizes that in Rome, in all sorts of Roman colonization throughout the entire known world, there was a center for um, all things Caesar. All things Roman Empire. It was Rome. Rome was the center of all that. Out of Rome came every Roman citizen's, every Roman citizen's, their citizenship. Does that make sense? So the whole focus of Rome was to not to get every citizen within the Roman Empire, no matter how far extended, to come into and pile into Rome, but was to go outside of Rome throughout the entire world to colonize the world in the name of Caesar for the glory of Rome. Paul borrows that phrase, and he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And what God is doing through you, saints, who've been transformed by having faith in God, who've been transformed by showing love to all, is to colonize this sin-filled, broken, dysfunctional world to give them a glimpse of what it looks like when Jesus the King reigns. That's what God calls us to. Paul's appeal to us is not somehow to act Christian because that's the good Christian thing to do, but to live as saints in this world. Some of us might be like, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. How can I love people that have hurt me or wounded me? In the same way that Jesus turned to a paralytic guy who had a paralyzed arm, his arm was withered, couldn't stretch it out. Jesus said, stretch out your arm. It's impossible. This guy's never stretched his arm. He could have sat there and sort of bartered with Jesus, been like, I never stretched out my arm. It's impossible. I can't do it. Or at least I tried it once, one time, and it never worked. But Jesus says, stretch out your arm. And my man finally stretched out his arm, and it was made whole. In the same way, Jesus would say to us, love your enemies. We might be just like that man with the withered arm, in our mind, begin to rationalize and think, I can't love my enemies. They've hurt me. They wounded me. Here's reasons why. There's no reason why I can love those people. Jesus says, I know it's impossible to you in the flesh, but by my power, in my spirit, because of new creation, stretch out your love, forgive, receive, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do it. At the end of the day, guys, as a church, we will be known for something. We'll be known for something. There'll, there'll be a name. And frankly, I don't really care what type of name we have amongst non-believers. What I do care about is the type of name that we have amongst believers. People will talk about Calvary Slope. What type of church is Calvary Slope? Oh, that's the church where a lot of people are young. That's the church where, you know, 95% of people have tattoos. Or they wear mustaches. Or they're kind of semi-hipster. That's the church. That's that. Look, let me just put it this way. That's absolutely superficial. I hope that's not how we're known. I hope that's not the reputation we have. The point that I would make is this. The idea that we should be known for is the type of love that we have for all people. Do we love? Has the love of God been shed abroad in our hearts? Has the love of God permeated us as a family, spread out as a family, into this community as a family? That's what Paul's saying. And he rejoices at the fact of what's happening here. I want to invite you into that. If you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to meet Jesus. If you are a Christian, I invite you to pray that God would help you to be an instrument whereby he continues to pour forth his grace through you. I'm going to have the team come on up. We're going to finish closing a few songs. Um, been saying this past several weeks.
We want to encourage you if you're family. You can more than welcome to invite your kids to come on in here. We try. We're trying to be finished at around 1235. If we do go over a little bit at 1235, if you're a parent, you got your kids in the children's ministry, please, uh, at least one of the parents, maybe send them back there to go pick up the kids. Uh, the kids have been in there for a long time, and they start to break down, just like you might be. Um, they have less ability to control their breakdowns than we do. Um, so go relieve the workers, and at the same time, thank the workers. Say thank you to the workers. They devote so much of their time and energy to serving you guys and serving your kids. Show some gratitude, love them, thank them, get to know them. Maybe invite them out to coffee, invite them to your house, show some hospitality to them. It's a great way for us to be a family. That's a very simple and tangible way of showing this type of love that I'm talking about here on a very horizontal level. Amen? Let me pray. Let's sing with some rugs in the front. If you want to just get on your face before Jesus, communion in the back. We'll have some people off over the side by the cross. I'll pray for you. So let's, God, right now we uh, give our hearts to you. We ask Jesus that you would just fall afresh upon us by your Holy Spirit to renew us, to rebuild us, to send us out on mission. Jesus, we know that our work that we do will never make things perfect. It's not our work that does it. It's your work that, that work through us. God, we long for the day that one day when King Jesus will come back and fully rule and reign. Until that day, God, we are thankful that we get to be part of the kingdom-building project that was launched the day that Jesus rose again from the dead. God, help us to see miracles, true miracles of new life that happen. Help us to be the conduits of that. Whether it be the miracle of forgiveness, the miracle of overturning stinginess with unbelievable generosity grace and kindness Holy Spirit move and work through us we pray